when the collapse happened, we had um, we had uh, developed a harbor island, which is a little sixty-acre piece right across the harbor from the resort. It sold the first lot in two thousand and five, and had developed five more lots. I think in a very tasteful way uh, that we had sort of depended on selling. Uh, to help offset some of those improvements we'd already made and we had planned to make. And I had, you know, hedge fund guys from New York flying in, their architects from Chicago and their land planners from San Francisco. And, uh, you know, I, I, I thought within two months I'd sell all of these lots, six, $700,000 a piece, and that was my fuel for the next 10 years. Sure. Overnight, those folks just disappeared. I mean, literally disappeared. Had no idea how to get a hold of them. They probably weren't even working where they were anymore. Uh, the collapse was was unbelievable. And uh, the pressure that that sort of put on us, there were two or three years that just some of our, you know, our, our most uh, faithful uh, sort of had disappeared from a business standpoint too. So you had a combination of real estate values disappearing and then the business model taking a hit. And uh, it was tough. Yeah. It was tough for a little while. This is the first year. It's 2018. This is the first year that we'll get by, we'll, we'll get beyond where we were in 2007. Hey everyone, I'm Palmer Higgins and welcome to the Big Time Small Business Podcast. I interview owners, operators, and founders of the small businesses you see every day but don't hear enough about. We talk about the obstacles they have faced, the successes they have earned, and where their business is going to inspire and inform you in your own career. On this episode, I talk with Bob Smith, owner of Sabasco Harbor Resort, a 405-acre seasonal family vacation destination located on the coast of Southern Maine. The self-proclaimed keeper of the lighthouse, a title and homage to his promise to preserve the 90-year legacy that came before him, Bob has spent his 21 years as owner setting the resort up to last another 90 years. Bob shares what it was like to live through the financial crisis, a setback that he is only now, some 11 years later, completely through, and his three-legged vision for the property to attract a long-term employer and build a residential community to complement the resort and its amenities. All right, Bob Smith, uh, lighthouse keeper of Sabasco Harbor Resort. Thanks a lot for being on the Big Time Small Business Podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Happy to have you here. Um, I think the first question is the most obvious question. Lighthouse keeper, not the most common title, definitely not the most common thing to see on a business card yeah. for a, an owner of a, a business, resort or otherwise. So mm -hmm. tell me how you got that. Well, I think um, part of what the resort has is a, a, a really cool accommodation called the Lighthouse with 10 ends, ten rooms in the end that looks out over the harbor and out of the ocean. And, and uh, it's the signature building that we had when I first bought the place. And, uh, but when I bought the place, I bought it uh, from a couple who I had known uh, with sort of the promise of stewardship for the resort long term. So I am the keeper of the lighthouse. 
nice. the keeper of the resort. So is that a stipulation of, of the purchase, that it you was, were going to be it, the keeper of it, the lighthouse? It was not in writing, <laughs> but no, the reality was, uh, you know, I, I, I took it on because um, I really do feel a stewardship for this marvelous piece of property and a very beautiful piece of Maine. And uh, they could have sold the property to a number of other people for probably a lot more money who would have just turned it into a spectacular residential development. And uh, and I sort of made a pledge that I would do the best I could to honor uh, the already 67 years that had been put into um, uh, making delightful vacations for guests from all over the world. So, sure. Yeah. So I'm actually, I'm, it's funny you say that because that that is a theme that in, in my day job, talking with business owners who are looking to sell comes up very regularly in the world of small business that I think is very unique when you think about the M&A, the merger and acquisition world, broadly speaking. Uh, and that's one of, of legacy and stewardship, two mm-hmm. things that you just talked about, that is very common to, to, to talk to a, a small business owner who's looking to sell, but that they care very deeply about who they're selling to and what their intentions are and how they're going to own the business. And it's not necessarily just about the dollar in the purchase agreement. Yeah. Uh, so can you talk about uh, not just why you bought a resort in Southern Maine, but sort of that whole process and that relationship that you built with the previous owners. And I, and I think that'll probably bleed into the history of, of Sabasco, which is, as you said, your ownership is about 21 years, but the resort's been around for 90. Next, next year will be our 90th year. Right. Yeah. So Which is neat. A yeah. lot to talk about there. Right. I'll, I'll right. leave, it, leave it up to you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I got to know John and Dee Dee, uh, mostly John Bradford, who since passed was a wonderful, wonderful man, um, with my involvement in Inns. I was a biology major at USM and started working at the Holiday Inn by the Bay now, but it was the Holiday Inn downtown then, and decided that I kind of liked the industry. So I sort of took a little time, went to Florida, helped open a resort down there, and then uh, came back and sort of plunged in and uh, 22 years later, got an opportunity to finally buy, buy my own place. Uh, but in those years, being involved with lots of mentors of mine in this industry, uh, uh, I really developed some wonderful relationships, and people really helped me, and John was one. And when uh, he and Dee Dee decided that, uh, and they were the second generation of the Dana family to operate that property, and had for... 42 years, uh, decided it was time to retire, um, they were willing to be patient enough to try to find who they thought was the right person to take the uh, uh, tradition of the place forward. And, uh, you know, I didn't have the money or uh, the ability to write a check at that time, and I'd probably even get financed uh, to do a lot of it. But uh, they gave me close to six months to try to pull the deal together and find the right partner and to do it. And But it was an interesting concept. And I saw opportunities there. I saw the beauty of the property. I finished my tour and said, I've got to figure out a way to do this. And um, that was in September. So I said six months. It really closed on May 1st. So it was more like eight months from beginning to end. But the deal pretty much got done in March, and then it was just lining everything up between the middle of March and May 1st to close and kind of hit the ground running because we opened three weeks later, and we did about a quarter of a million dollars in site work and improvements and uh, uh, really, I I think, made some big investment, you know, 
close to two million dollars in investments in that first year wow. into the property, uh, which it you know it kind of needed it. It was a little tired, and uh, it's funny because you know twenty two years later, I still I hear that a little bit because it's twenty two years since, and mm -hmm. though we put a lot of money into it, it's got thirty seven buildings, and it's the definition of the money pit. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, but anyway, I, you know uh, we got the deal done. Um, I was very excited, and now you're you know, sort of stepping back after a couple of decades, and what's the next step? Yeah. So that's what we're working on now. Sure. So you, you said that uh, before you bought Sabasco, you, you were the, the deal guy, um, and, and certainly in the hospitality space, there's a, there's a huge development component, and you've talked now already about some of the investments you made in Sabasco right when you bought it. And since then, I think you, you, you mentioned... Uh, on your website that you've invested over $12 million uh, into the resort over the, over your tenure of ownership. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about um, when, when you think about investment, you think about development, um, you know, how do you think about capital allocation? How do you think about investment? Um, either things you've learned at Tabasco or, or prior to, you know, getting a return on those dollars. And, and when you talk about 37 buildings, you know, how do you allocate, how do you allocate dollars across 37 buildings? Yeah. Well, I, I don't think you allocate dollars. You try to figure out ways to blow some of them up and get them <laughs> out of there. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think we do a five-year capital plan uh, that we try to focus on what are we going to do next year? What are we going to do in the next three years? What do we need to do in the next five years? Um, and, uh, some of what we did and, you know, most of what was spent was spent in the first 10 years um, uh, because we got a great start out of the blocks. We got tremendous improvement by uh, in financial um, performance by going from early May to late October, stretching the season. Uh, beautiful times to be in Phippsburg. It's less than an hour from Portland and Picked up a lot of corporate and association group business. We do a lot of great destination weddings in the spring and the fall. And so the formula was all working great and it kicked out cash. It kicked out uh, the ability to borrow. And, and um, you know, we built 18 new suites. We started out by building the Pilot House restaurant and the Ledges Pub down on the waterfront. Uh, that was the first million two. <laughs> And, uh, and then we spent uh, almost $3 million on uh, 18 suites that we built in 2005. We built a spa with suites around it in 2006 for the 2007 season. And that was uh, over $2 million. So we had projects that probably were half of that. Um, and, uh, and the other half was just the annual capital improvements that you have to make sure. every year when you have a property like that. Sure. You know, uh, people see uh, new linens and they see new carpeting and they see new furniture and they see all that stuff. Uh, they don't necessarily notice when you spend $75,000 on a new roof and, you know, uh, $120,000 on repaving and you know all those things that you still need to do yeah new boiler but, new HVAC system right, exactly I'm yeah. sure I could go off on <laughs> all kinds of things right right so so uh, you know typically that we had on an annual basis to we had to spend 150 to 200 thousand dollars in just your your regular annual capital 
improvements to turning furniture and turning carpet in. Uh, you know, fortunately, we get a little bit more life out of that because we're seasonal. Mm-hmm. You know, it's being used six months a year versus 12 months a year with lots of other hotels. Uh, you know, the downside is the business model, sure. <laughs> which is seasonally, it's it's great. You're making money six months out of the year, six months out of the year, you're not. Right. Uh, and the- it's a lot of carrying costs. It's a lot of carrying costs. And it's also, uh, it's a very, it's a big challenge on the, on the uh, employment side, yep. uh, because you know seasonal employment, you know a lot of folks look at year-round opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a, n- a number of our employees who are uh, retired, who love to have the seasonal opportunity. There are a number of our employees who um, work for us six months a year and then go to Colorado or go to Florida or go to Arizona or go to Washington State. Uh, and they enjoy the sort of nomadic life of uh, of being where they'd like to be for six months a year from a climate standpoint, from a beauty standpoint. So that's great. Um, and then we have a base of year-round staff that handle marketing and handle reservations and handle maintenance and, and uh, handle accounting and some of the other, uh, you know, golf we have a golf course, so there's that winter maintenance of equipment and everything. We've got a lot of stuff to plow, <laughs> so we stay busy in the winter. Sure, and and we do have that base staff, and that's important because you have new people that come every year, and you got to train those people, and they have to understand the culture of what we do, and uh, that's that's always a challenge because you can't help but have turnover when you. You have uh, 18 to 20 folks working year-round, and then you have 150 working there at peak. So Oof. it's a pretty big ramp up. Yeah, I was yeah. About, I was about to ask. So seasonal businesses is something that I'm familiar with. That kind of ramp is something I'm definitely not familiar with. Yeah. So can you can you talk a bit about just the managerial challenge of let's we'll get to just trying to find the 150 people to come right. in seasonally, and, and yeah. you have some some good stories there that I want to get into, but. Just training them. Let's say, let's say you could find them, no problem. You snap mm-hmm. your fingers, and 150 people are there on your doorstep. First of all, how do you find the right ones? How do you how do you read weed out the ones that are going to be successful for you and, and carry the culture that you want and and be sort of the uh, have have the customer service that you expect? Uh, but then, how do you train them to do their job that they're only going to do for six months out of the year? Right. Well, I think in part some of those jobs aren't as skilled as others. Uh, and so uh, uh, whether it's a, a high school kid that lives in the area uh, learning to do dishes or whether it's someone who's coming to, for six months from Puerto Rico or Bulgaria, mm-hmm. uh, because we do use some J-1 students, that's a State Department program where uh, students can come for four months, uh, from mostly from Eastern Europe. Initially, when we started that program probably 15 years ago, it was Ireland and Germany and France and UK, and now it's Bulgaria and it's Serbia and it's Czech Republic, and uh, those are more of those kids who come on the J-1 visas. But but they get a wonderful experience, um, and we have the big advantage I think we have is we've got uh, four different dormitories, and we have the housing that a lot of our um you know, friendly competitors struggle with, especially in southern Maine. Sure, uh, just at, at seasonal during housing. Peak season. Oh right. my goodness, yeah. it's it's very difficult to sure. find. So luckily, you have thirty seven buildings. Yeah, right. Yeah, and some of them we use for staff. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right, um, but um, but we have some folks who come from Puerto Rico. 
and that's a market that we've uh, developed a lot over the last couple of years. Uh, but really, after Maria last year uh, was a uh, was a created an opportunity for a win-win uh, uh, for some folks in some small villages in the mountains that just got washed away mm-hmm. uh, to find some place to go, uh, make some good money, um, and be with us for the full season from beginning to end, which is kind of a disadvantage with the J1s because they all go back in September and go back to school themselves. But but uh, hardworking people who needed an opportunity and we were able to sort of connect uh, um, with some folks down there to to you know, this year. And um, there's another program called the H2B program that has been an extremely difficult one to work with. And I'm sure you've worked with it as well. Very familiar with it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we we dipped our toes in that water 15 years ago. And even back then, year to year, the you know, the uh, you could not depend on uh, you know, how the government would handle it, you know, where the quotas were going to be, uh, whether it was going to be alive the next year. So we had... Uh, for the listeners, you want to give a, a quick synopsis of what the H2B program is meant to be? Yeah. Well, the H2B program is simply meant to provide a seasonal workforce uh, for uh, to do jobs that it's very hard to find Americans to do, agricultural jobs, uh, landscaping jobs, hospitality jobs, you know, housekeeping and, uh, um, you know, washing dishes and working on grounds and mowing golf courses. And, you know, I think in a year-round situation, certainly not as difficult, but in a seasonal situation, almost impossible to find. Uh, you, know, you think about Bar Harbor as a, for instance, you know, 3.2 million visitors come to Acadia National Park. It's a town of 5,000 people. And <laughs> I think two-thirds of them are retired. Yep. Uh, how do you Probably find... at least. <laughs> right. How do you find the workforce to handle all of those visitors and all the hotels up there? You, you need a program that... Uh, that you can bring in those staff so you can give the service that you need to give to those folks. And, and you know, the H2B program... Oh, it's just, it's maddening. Uh, um, the quotas that, uh, you know, are there, and then uh, they had a returning worker exemption. So if you'd been here in the last three years, you didn't count against the quota. That sunsetted. So all of a sudden, 130,000 people who came two years ago uh, uh, was reduced to 33,000 because of uh, the returning worker exemption going away. And Cape Cod and Maine and a number of different very seasonal areas who had those seasonal needs. You know, businesses um, have shutting down early. Businesses, some businesses, we have a restaurant in our town that just didn't open this year uh, because they just couldn't find the workforce. And the other two uh, up there um, in Phippsburg, uh, both either closed uh, early or closed a couple of nights a week when they'd normally be open seven nights a week, just couldn't find the workforce. And we were fortunate to actually have some of our workforce help those other businesses because most of these folks who come seasonally, they're trying to make as much as they can make. Mm -hmm. And so if they can work in housekeeping with us during the day and then go off and help on uh, uh, doing dishes or or, uh, working the line in 
one of the other restaurants in town, they're happy to do it. And those restaurants are happy to have them a Great. little. Yeah. Great. So um, we've talked a couple times about uh, sort of investment and capital. So I want to sort of flash forward to this point in time. And you, you, you mentioned that you're sort of, you're at another crossroads uh, about sort of where do you take the resort from here? You know, your, your two daughters don't have any interest. They're away yeah. and don't have interest in taking over the business. Um, so can you talk a bit about sort of where, where you are as an owner in Sabasco today, 20 years of a, of a 90 year legacy and how you're thinking about sort of the next 20 years? Yeah, I think it would be hard for me to do that without first talking about the real crossroad, which was when everything hit in 2008 sure. and there was a collapse. And the, you know, $150,000 to $200,000 a year that we would put into the property, um, you know, just to kind of keep it up, we just, we didn't have for two or three years. You know, uh, our business took a real hit. We had some real estate that uh, that we had sort of uh, real estate opportunities sort of around the outskirts of the resort that we had developed. That, that value just disappeared. And some of those plans that we had in play uh, for the long-range improvements to the resort just went away. And so, um, you know, it really took four or five years to bounce back from that mm -hmm. and to restructure debt and to, you know, do what we could to survive. But we also got behind in the capital stuff. And it's really over the last two or three years that We've been able to get caught up. We've spent, you know, we spent a half a million dollars probably in 2012 to, but we've been catching up now for four or five years. Yeah. And uh, I don't, I, I wouldn't say that we're totally caught up, but we're back to where we were before everything hit. Sure. And, uh, and I feel, I feel good about that. And I also feel that, you know, we've, we had a 10 year plan. <laughs> when I bought the resort, that we got through five years of the plan. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the big push, we've got a 305-acre uh, mountain parcel, Mount Merritt, that has spectacular ocean views, totally undeveloped. And we had looked at, a uh, you know, sort of building a golf community and expanding the golf course up there. Um, we had... Uh, um, had other plans for some of the other golf course that expansion that we had done, um, and now it's it's we've been able over the last couple of years to not worry about survival, but to start to think ahead about finishing that initial plan. Sure. Um, so actually, I want to dive into that a little deeper because I think, um, especially when people think about oh eight oh nine uh, and the 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 financial crisis they think about it as a, as a huge drop off, but then a pretty quick rebound. And I think what's lost is that kind of a shock, especially to a, a seasonal and discretionary business like yours in the hospitality sector has had reverberations for a decade. And I think that that gets lot that it's hard for people to understand that. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'd like, I'd like to talk about that a little bit more about how, you know, when that happens, it not only affects you for three, four years, but the knock-on consequences you're still essentially feeling. And, and to go back in that time and talk a bit more about the hard decisions of, hey, guess what? You know, there's a new reality now. Our five-year plan, put it in the trash can. We gotta, we gotta be doing a, a one-month and a six-month plan just to see if you know we're gonna be okay here. So can you sort of take us back to '09 and some of the hard Do I have decisions? To? Yeah, I'd Do like I have to. to. I'd like to. Well, because I think yeah. it, it's uh, people look at the stock market chart. And sort of the rebound has been 
has been there and then some. Right. But when you talk about small business operations, the cycles are a lot slower, right? You're not looking at a at a trading chart and seeing stocks go up five percent or down a percent or right. whatever. Right. Uh, and Maine, you know, Maine the cycle always, times way way longer. Right. And Maine um, always seems to lag the rest of New England. I've heard, know, I've heard a lot of people pain say that doesn't happen as quick. But once the pain happens, it takes longer to recover. Sure. Uh, I think yeah, certainly we're driven to a degree in the resort business in Maine by uh, the economies of southern New England. England and New York and and others. So, uh, but you know, I my daughter was actually working for Lehman, and was on the executive floor when all of this was going on, mm-hmm. and with little glass walls. And she'd call me up and say, "Dad, you know, uh, Fultz says everything is great, but we've got the Treasury Secretary in here. We've got the." Fed chair in here, you know, everybody's coming and going like crazy, and Jeez. you know, and and so she got to kind of witness that history. Yeah, I got to uh, enjoy that history in a different way. Yeah, because enjoy when the colla- when the collapse happened, we had um, we had uh, developed Harbor Island, which is a little sixty acre piece right across the harbor from the resort. It sold the first lot in 2005 and had developed five more lots, I think in a very tasteful way uh, that we had sort of depended on selling uh, to help offset some of those improvements we'd already made and we had planned to make. And I had, you know, hedge fund guys from New York flying in their architects from Chicago and their land planners from San Francisco. And, uh, you know, I, I, I thought within... Two months, I'd sell all of these lots, six, seven hundred thousand dollars a piece, and that was my fuel for the next ten years. Sure. Overnight, those folks just disappeared. I mean, literally disappeared. I had no idea how to get a hold of them. They probably weren't even working where they were anymore. Uh, the collapse was was unbelievable, and uh, the pressure that that sort of put on us. You know, we have a bit a, a business where you know probably. Uh, 25 to 30 percent of our customer base is being fueled by uh, um, grandparents who are doing three generational travel and renting the same six bedroom cottage every year for a week and getting the children and the grandchildren all together. It's mm-hmm. like Christmas in July sure. at Sabasco. And uh, it's not that they didn't have the money to afford that vacation, it's that one of their children was probably out of work. Or, uh, or worse, and uh, they felt the need to help the children versus, you know, go on vacation this sure. particular year. So there were two or three years that just some of our, you know, our our most uh, faithful uh, sort of had disappeared from a business standpoint too. So you had a combination of real estate values disappearing and then the business model taking a hit. And uh, it was tough. Yeah. It was tough for a little while. Um, and, you know, one of the things I got to do, I guess, was nice is I, I know a lot of these people personally. I knew some folks who were out of work all of a sudden and, and just called crying because they couldn't come. And the room was going to be empty anyway. So I said, come, <laughs> come. Wow. You can just come. It's all right. And uh, and I think they're, they're they're certainly more faithful customers now. And I was happy to just get the food and beverage revenue, for sure. You know, to yeah. have them still go out to eat and still play golf and still do some of the things. But I knew they couldn't afford to come, so I kind of felt like Santa a little bit, even though I I, I was getting 
hammered pretty hard. So. Talk about keeper of the lighthouse, right? Yeah, there. right, right. Yeah, but make but, him proud. Yeah, but it was again. This is the first year. It's 2018. This is the first year that we'll get by. We'll we'll get beyond where we were in 2007. Wow! So it's taken 11 so years. It really is for us. Slowly, and over the last three or four years, as we've caught up on the capital stuff, um, because the place was tired, um, uh, you know, with revenues three years in a row are going to be up between seven and nine percent, you know, three years in a row. So that's finally the kind of growth that we were on early on. Yep. Uh, uh, but now it's it's time to think about the future. All right, so let's talk about it. Yeah, uh, yeah. So you're caught up the. The 11-year slog to get mm. over 08. Um, and, and now you're sort of, you're finally feeling, all right, um, I'm comfortably head above water, no sort of built-up uh, work that needs to be done on the properties and whatnot. Um, so Versus underwater, where I was for about <laughs> probably six years. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I mean, that's a really uncomfortable place to be for a really long period of time. Yeah. Uh, and that's a... That's something that I hear from small business owners a lot. Uh, and, and one of the, the primary reasons of why I want to do this podcast is when I talk to business owners in any context and I, and I hear, I talk to them about their stories, they, everyone has, has, a, has an underwater story that lasts longer than you'd really want to, probably longer than they'd want to admit. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I find inspiring and, and incredibly commendable is the resilience that they have of and you talk about six years of underwater and being able to take that power through and, and work your way out of it, um, you know, that's incredible. Uh, and it's, and it's, I think it's easy to say it's hard to live. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, yeah, it's not easy, but I think um, probably the best part about it is every key employee who uh, was there in 07 is still pretty much there. You know, uh, Michael Lynch, who's my uh, managing partner, came aboard the year in 2007 before this all hit. And uh, he's still there. You know, Melissa Morbillo, who's the resort manager now, uh, was the director of sales, came the year before this. So they've all lived through it and they've all kind of powered through it. And, you know, I have my two guys in maintenance, John and Owen Totman, have been there both for 60 years. They're not 60 years old. They've been there for 60 years. Jeez. John just turned 81. Owen's going to be 78 years no old. No way. Yeah. And they're still climbing under buildings, and they're still, I mean, the, the that's tradition uh, that's there. You know, uh, the employees that have been there for decades uh, really kind of, that's the other part of the lighthouse keeper piece. You know sure. what I mean? Uh, they stick by you, and they do whatever they can in tough times, and and you try to do the same and reward them for that. And yeah. uh, I'm just, you know, really proud of all of them. But it was it was tough. Yeah. But now it's time to think about the future. Yeah. All right. So let's let's get there. Yeah. Um, you know, how how do you think about the future? What kind of timeline do you do you think about it in? Uh, or kind of time frame do you think about it in? And sort of how do you weigh risk reward with pros cons with timeline and sort of how do you put that all into the magic box and come out with a a five, ten year plan. Yeah. Well, or the, a one year plan yeah. for that matter. Uh, one, there's no magic box uh, because things in our industry and I think just in our particular property change all the time. You know, there's, there's always something you're not thinking about. Uh, 
Uh, and you talked a little bit earlier about the HVAC, HVAC or the mechanical systems. You know, you you uh, you know have a new boiler that you bought for this building five years ago, and you think you're good for another ten years with that, and bang, it goes, and you're figuring it out. But so you have to be fluid. But in my case, and maybe this is one of the problems that I had was I didn't really care about making a lot of money. I really cared about I enjoyed what I did. It, as my son-in-law Ian says, you got the best gig in the in the world because you know you have six months of interaction with lots of people you've gotten to know over the years and and uh, lots of friends and and then you got six months out of the year where you get to plan, you get to think, you get to focus on the following year, you get to talk in a less hectic environment <laughs> than you have in the six months that you're operating uh, about about the future. And so you get that sort of off-season clarity, which is nice. And uh, Very positive way to think about it. Well, yeah, no. You know, it's a challenging business model, (laughs) no doubt, because every year you're going to hire, you know, five to ten people who aren't a good fit. You know, you work really hard to, uh, and we have lots of, you know, time to really spend finding those right people. And I think that's probably our biggest strength is the focus we put on hiring the right people with the right attitudes and not worrying about, you know, necessarily the skill set. You know, I think that could be trained, that, you know, that could be trained. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we can show someone as long as they understand the culture of what we are, which is simply to really um, take seriously the importance of a family's time together. <laughs> You know, it doesn't happen a lot. It happens in the holidays. It happens occasionally on vacation. Uh, but it's very important time. And, and, and I think everybody in our culture understands that, that, uh, it's a, it's a burden of responsibility that you have to enjoy. Uh, um, and I like to think just about everybody who works for us does. We get lots of great comments about, friendliest staff we've ever seen ever. It's wonderful how people know your name. And and we might not be a, a Ritz-Carlton or a Four Seasons or, you know, a really a sort of a luxury property. We're trying to be a three-star family destination resort. And um, the people that serve the people who come is, is the heart of, I think, our success. Sure. Yeah. But now it's time to say, okay, we've got a, a, a what next year will be a ninety-year-old in mm-hmm. that uh, um, really needs some attention. We've got uh, a conference center uh, and um, a wedding venue, all of them meeting space. All is all of that's in a building that's seventy years old. You know, do you spend two or three or four million dollars doing a total reno of all of that space, that key space that's sort of the heart of your spring and fall? Or do you sort of blow it up and and go bigger? And uh, and that's what we, you know, we're working on right now. We're, we're, we're uh, working with a company to sort of analyze what the results are going to be uh, in both directions. And... Um, Again, I sort of strayed away from it, but I've never really worried about making a lot of money. I've wanted to just do the right job. Sure. And I think sometimes that, that's come back to haunt me in that, 
you know, at, at different times when we had tough times, if I'd put more aside or if I'd done a little bit, uh, focused a little bit more on, on the war chest for the tough times, I think uh, we would have been in better shape now than we are. But hey. <laughs> so when, when you're thinking about, uh, you know, do you put a few million dollars into uh, a renovation or do you blow it up and, and go bigger? Um, the experience of 08 and, and sort of just getting through it 11 years later now, mm. does that affect sort of how you handicap those two investments? Because, I mean, they're both investments, and I'm sure the the evaluation internally and, and with this company that you're working with is some sort of ROI, return on investment analysis of assuming, you know, if you blow it up and go bigger, you're going to get you know, higher rates at an X, X utilization or right. not. Right. You know, but it is, we're talking about two different magnitudes of investment, right. um, probably two different ways of financing it, mm-hmm. um, and two different timelines in terms of payoff, right. and probably a degree of probably a, a difference in certainty around those assumptions, because ultimately they are their assumptions, their projections. Right. So how, I guess two questions here, how does the experience going through 08 affect that decision making today? And how, uh, how, do, how does it affect you as an owner where you've just said that you have you know, two daughters that aren't, aren't, interested, aren't interested in taking the business over. How does that affect your timeline for how long, how, down, how far down the road you think about a return in terms of investment dollars today? Right. Well, I would say I don't care about the return, which would sound to you probably crazy. But um, uh, for me, it's more I'm trying to create uh, a sustainable, long-term hospitality uh, business uh, for this great little town of Phippsburg, which, uh, uh, and so there's, uh, you know, the new plan that we had put together a couple of years ago and updated last year uh, by Hart Howard and talked about this three-legged stool and trying to take a, a piece of that 305 undeveloped acres uh, into a, a, a sort of an opportunity to attract uh, an employer who would come in, um, and we've thought more along the lines of uh, of the health industry, whether it's a, a, a biology company, something like a Jackson Labs. So they just expanded what they did, obviously, up in uh, Bar Harbor mm-hmm. to go uh, uh, sort of in Ellsworth and across to the Scudic side. Uh, but that type of company, I think, in a little town like Phippsburg, less than an hour from Portland, would be huge for the community, creating some professional jobs, creating some of the jobs around it. Um, and so I've, I've been working on trying to put my feelers out there and, and see if, uh, you know, we can donate this property, a piece of this property to that right fit. Uh, because, you know, it's one leg of the stool. But it creates maybe better opportunities on the residential side of what we want to do on the mountain parcel. And golf is no longer a big attraction. That industry's changed. We've got a great nine-hole track, but I don't think we need this uh, world-class 18-hole golf course anymore. I think on the residential piece that would be left, the focus would be on, uh, you know, on a little community farm and, and more uh, healthy living, uh, healthy style of living for the folks that are there. So can you talk about that residential piece? You've mentioned it a few times. Um, 
So can you expand on that? Because I think right now, when people are listening to this, they're like, uh, I understand Sabasco Resort, they're Googling it, and you know they have a sense for for what it is. And then you're talking about this uh, residential community piece, and maybe they're not sure how contextually what that means. So can you explain yeah. that a bit? Yeah, well, I think when we looked back, back in 05 and 06, uh, I actually had a, uh, a deal 95% done with uh, with a company called Northland Residential. Uh, Frank Stewart, wonderful guy, was the CEO of that company. He actually went to UMaine, and the company was based out of Burlington, but had done a, a lot of wonderful residential developments, mostly high-end in all of New England, but a number in Maine. And, uh, you know, Frank really loved Maine, and, and he really thought that this parcel of land would be a great uh, uh, opportunity to put a mixture of um, sort of a senior living style of 55 plus community with more of a, you know, a, a residential community and their mix. They did all the research and, um, and they were ready to buy the land and kind of partner with me on, on growing the resort. Um, uh, when everything hit, they had to step back mm-hmm. and, and I certainly understood why, uh, and, you know, they were a company that had a, a lot of big projects in you know, Massachusetts that were huge that just, you know, slowed down overnight. Uh, but, but I loved what the concept was. And that was to create this community sort of across the street from the resort for it to be a feeder for the resort on the food and beverage side, on the activity side, and for the resort to offer uh, a wonderful amenity to that residential community. Mm-hmm. And it was a, sort of a win-win. Um, and I'm trying to get that back on track. Although, uh, you know, with a little different advice and, and um, because if you have the resident, if you have an employment piece that helps support the residential piece, okay. that's the hope. Yep. And the residential piece and the employment piece help support expanding the resort season. So are those the three legs of the stool? There? Those are the three legs of the, the employment stool. side, the residential side, the resort side. Well, it's three it's, legs. It's the resort side, it's the residential side, it's right, it's finding that right fit as an employer. Mm-hmm. Uh, to create some, you know, uh, we're we're the only big dog down in this little beautiful little town. If we create more options in the community, uh, I think it'd be wonderful. So sure. Yeah. So you mentioned, I mean, it's a it's a great comment, um, and and certainly differentiative of saying that you don't care about the return. Mm. But if I were to push back, maybe you don't care about it the way a, a typical financial mind might come at it, but you do care about it in the sense of furthering the mission of Sabasco Absolutely. and supporting the community, supporting your employees, being able to contribute to their development, professional development, and, and being able to be an enduring resort that can weather the next 90 years and the next downturn. Correct. So, um, so while it might not be how much, how much cash can I stuff in, in my own pocket, right. it's, it's still very much, you know, the decisions you're making are going to be impacting the sort of long-term trajectory of Sabasco. Uh, so how do you think about that? Uh, and how do you weigh that? Or, and how do you sort of set the course when, you know, when talking about a seasonal, cyclical, real estate-driven business, you've experienced it, there there can be some pretty heavy ups and downs. Right. And that's why I think that you can't finance all of this uh, for sure. Uh, you have to spread the risk. Uh, you have to, uh, 
You know, I think as I as I dis- decide who I might do this with, because you know I have you know fortunately, uh, Mr. Lynch, my managing partner, has got a piece of this now. That was part of our deal when he came aboard, and I'm I'm very glad to, for all that he's contributed. I had hoped, uh, you know, I think initially to do an ESOP or uh, find a way to sort of. Uh, Step aside and turn it over as an employee-owned company. Yeah, can you just give a quick, a quick detour on what an ESOP is? I know what it is. Right, right, right. right. Well, employee, employee stock, stock ownership plan. Ownership plan. Quick, correct. quick yeah. summary of what that means. Well, it means that that you uh, there's a couple of different ways to do it, but in essence, you are financing your way out of a company um, uh, by letting the employees buy it. Uh, and you you you, you get a uh, an evaluation of what the property's worth, and then uh, slowly you uh, you know sometimes with financing, sometimes with just cash flow, you slowly sell it to the employees, and the employees own own the company, and it you know sort of it's a that's one good way of stewardship for of sure. keeping it you know for uh, sure. the way it's going to be for a long time. Uh, but one I don't really you know over the course of the years. Those things can't weather the kind of hit that we took. Um, and now it's, uh, I'm looking at it a little differently just, uh, because I think that I need outside investment to really, uh, make it sustainable. And that really wouldn't work in an ESOP environment. And we just don't perform well enough financially in a seasonal type business to make that happen. You know, I still, uh, you know, while my two daughters, uh, aren't interested, all three of Michael's daughters have been involved, like mine were, in okay. doing almost every job. Uh, you know, two are off to college now. One is uh, is out of college in, in down in Boston. Uh, all three, I think, have uh, um, a different skill set. That all they all were wonderful employees. And who knows? Uh, the second generation of Sabasco might be Michael's girls. Who sure. we'll see. Sure. You know. Uh, um, but you know that's that's a again from a transition standpoint. Uh, my wife just retired after forty years as a NICU nurse at Maine Med. She was the saver. She provided the benefits. She allowed me to be entrepreneurial for forty years. Yep. Uh, God love her. <laughs> and you know um, uh, she's you know we've got enough so that I don't have to make a big chunk of change on my way out the door. Uh, um, I'd like to make a little something, but, you know, for me, now that she's retired, I've sort of got this three- to five-year plan in my head of starting to transition either uh, uh, with new partners uh, to a reduced role or with new partners to work with Michael and, and let Michael roll with it. So I want to uh, I want to close up the interview with uh, a couple of questions that I ask everyone, uh, and these I think you might have a slightly different take on them, uh, but I'll, I'll ask them anyway. So the first one is: Imagine I gave you a, a pause button where the day to day responsibilities of of managing Sabasco fell away, and you could do anything you wanted with that, but it had to be furthering the mission of Sabasco in some way. You can't you can't go on vacation. That's the most common answer I get. Um, how would you allocate? How do you allocate that time? And the reason I say it might be different from you is, you know, you you mentioned earlier you got this great scenario. We have basically six months on of intense mm. in season activity and six months of of planning for the next six month season. Um, so to some degree, you kind of already have this. But 
uh, I'll ask it to you nonetheless of imagine I gave you that four months where there was there was nothing and maybe maybe do it in the middle of the in-season time so it's more drastic. Mm, right. How would you allocate that time? Yeah. Well, I think I, I might have already conned you to think that I actually work for a living because I don't. <laughs> you know, Michael, you know, even, even though we're busy for six months, you know, I've been sort of relegated to sort of hugging people and, you know, playing soft my Thursday softball game with the kids and all of that. I mean, I, I don't get that involved in the day-to-day uh, because they're better at it than me. <laughs> Melissa and Michael and Kat, they're all better at it than me. And, uh, you know, they're a little better in the technology side and in the social media side and the marketing side. And I get involved in all of that, and that's great. But, but you know, I think this year uh, uh, has been a year that I've actually focused more attention during the season on the future of the resort. And, you know, you give me some unobstructed time, uh, 100%, I think, of that attention, maybe 90% of that attention, 10%, the other 10% goes to sports uh, of every variety um, and a little golf. Uh, But 90% of that time is focused on, all right, how do I make this next three to five years successful? How do I look back five years from now, uh, you know, whether I'm involved actively or not involved actively? How do I find uh, the right David for Michael and uh, uh, and give him an opportunity to work with a partner who's willing to trust him to do the right thing uh, even you know and I can stay involved in helping with that but uh, to to transition the property to the you know whether it's he and his family or it's he and his partners or whatever how do we you know take that property to the next level get it sustainable get that mountain parcel developed in a way that's uh, beneficial to the community uh, and beneficial to all of the employees. Uh, and, you know, that's that's where I'd spend uh, every minute of my time, there you I go. would say. Good answer. Yeah. Uh, the next one is uh, similar, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jack up the numbers here. Historically, I've asked, imagine a uh, million dollars fell on your doorstep. How would you invest it? But given the magnitude, and we're dealing with real estate, the numbers are slightly bigger. Mm. So I'm going to say... $3 million. $3 million shows up on your doorstep. You have to reinvest it back in Sabasco. How are you allocating that money? Uh, we, we have a pretty hard $3 million capital plan right now. Great. I That's mean, it's, I mean, we, perfect. I would I say the right number. You know, my number is about two, six. Michael's number is like three because okay. he knows that, you know, uh, when, overruns. Yeah. He <laughs> knows we go on a roll and all of a sudden, uh, and uh, you want to have leather in that particular cottage versus, you know, cloth because you want to make it a look a little bit nicer. You know, I, I do have a tendency to, uh, in the middle of a project to think of a few other things we ought to do to make it a little nicer. Mm-hmm. So, but no, we've, uh, um, you know, we've zeroed in on exactly how we would take the property up one star okay. and what we have to do to go from uh, sort of being a three-star type family, you know, great, authentic main vacation to one that's uh, just a little bit nicer uh, and uh, that tackles all those little things that sometimes, you know, we have our, you know, staying ahead of nice pavement, <laughs> keeping uh, all of the resort signage, uh, um, you know, just fresh. And, you know, we we made a huge investment this year in just rebuilding all of the gardens at the resort, uh, which was a little overdue. 
Um, but you know, there are, um, you know, that's that whole amount of money is would simply be renovating everything that we have because it's thirty-seven buildings. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, and so then the big not one. one yeah. There's not one big allocation of capital. It's sort of spreading it across the entire property and bringing it up that right that we have the most we have the most magnificent pool in Maine it's the largest outdoor saltwater pool in the state it sits out in the middle of uh of the harbor of Sabasco Harbor it's something you could never do these days because <laughs> the end of it is on piers they built it out into the harbor uh uh, but it's been there for 45 years. And every year we spend ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 just, you know, repairing it from winter storms and putting the coping back on and re-cementing and painting it. You know, we'd love to drop $300,000 into just that one project to totally refresh it, make it new, make uh, the mechanical systems in it more modern, to create a food and beverage component around it. Uh, and, you know, something that... You know, we get a lot of feedback. Guests love the pool. They love the spot. They love the location. But like a lot of other things, Sabasco, it's a little tired. It could use a facelift. And, you know, there's, uh, you know. $3 million facelift. Yeah, yeah. But that makes a big, you know, uh, honestly, the the study we just got back justifies that, you know, that three, uh, and again, this is hospitality money, but the $3 million spent is going to generate between three and Three hundred fifty thousand dollars in EBITDA, you know, NOI on an annual basis. So it sort of justifies that, uh, you know, that kind of investment. Sure. And, and you know, that's like the that's the phase one piece. You know, the phase two piece is all right. You blow up a lot of buildings and get rid of a lot of the old stuff. You build a new kind of grand lodge and you get all the conference space under one roof. And you know, you. Uh, you kind of modernize some of those uh, facilities uh, that um, would attract the next level of kind of higher-end corporate group business out of New York and out of Boston. And we work with a lot of associations in Maine and New England. We work with a lot of companies out of the greater Portland area who love Sabasco for what it is, you know, just a very casual, unpretentious a beautiful place to bring a company outing, to bring a conference. And we've had some companies have been coming 10, 12 years in a row, some associations that have been doing the same. They've been coming for over a decade. Uh, they don't notice the blemish, blemishes as much. Sure. <laughs> They're willing, you know, uh, because of the service and because of the food and beverage that we provide and just that we do everything else so well that it's okay that there's a few buildings that might still be peeling a little bit if we haven't been able to catch up on the paint. Mm -hmm. So, Fair enough. Yeah. So the last question is the most open-ended, uh, and it's, what haven't I asked that I should have? <laughs> when are you retiring? <laughs> All right. No, I, no, I, uh, I don't want to ever. Side note is that you have to answer that question. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't want to ever retire. But I do realize at 63 years of age that I'm not going to live forever, although the Todmans seem to be able to. <laughs> I can't imagine working anywhere for 60 years, but then I wouldn't have imagined being here for 22. Mm -hmm. um, is, you know, I have two daughters that live uh, in uh, Princeton, New Jersey, and Brooklyn, New York. And I have grandsons that I'd like to spend more time with. And, 
you know, if only there was a family friendly resort nearby. Yeah, right, right. right. <laughs> Believe me, they come up as much as they can. I'm sure when they can. It was right there, mostly right there. in the summertime. No, I, I get you, I get you, and they love it. You know, it's a big part of my grandsons. You know, they'll they'll always remember their time there. Um, but you know, I'd like to spend a little bit more time with them. I'd like to do uh, a few more things with them, and I, I I'm I'm pretty lucky because for six months of the year. I've had a lot of flexibility mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, pretty much uh, not many months go by that we don't connect with one or the other or both. So that's good. Uh, but now that Lori's retired, it's a whole different thing for both of us. Sure. She's no longer working in the winter. So the flexibility I have in the winter, along with her being retired in the winter, we've got a year or two to sort of figure out how the winters go. Yeah. And uh, we might either really like it or she might go back to work. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Bob, I really appreciate you being on the show. Thanks a lot for uh, coming in. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Big Time Small Business Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review and share the show with a friend. To access show notes and subscribe to our distribution list, be sure to visit us at chenmarkcapital.com slash podcast. That's chenmark, C-H-E-N-M-A-R-K, capital.com slash podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Chen Holdco, C-H-E-N Holdco. Last but not least, we'd love to hear from you, so please drop us a line at podcast at chenmarkcapital.com. Thanks a lot.